three points for us this morning. Point number one, the disturbing betrayal of Judas. In fact, we'll spend most of our time considering that, verses 43 to 46. The dumbfounding response of Jesus's response, the dumbfounding response of Jesus to his arrest, verses 47 to 49. And then the disappointing desertion of the disciples, verses 50 to 52. Let's get straight into things and as we get into things, just to set the scene in Matthew chap in Mark chapter 14, uh, we have the final week of Jesus's life. If you were to look down at verse uh, 12, you'll see that on the Thursday morning, Jesus and his disciples began to make preparations for the Passover meal that they would share in together. Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead of them into the city. They made the preparations there in the upper room. When evening came, the disciples gathered there in the upper room. And we know from John's account that the first thing that happened was Jesus got down and washed all of his disciples' feet. As they were reclining at table, Jesus said to them, one of you is going to betray me. Then Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Then they sang a hymn, a psalm. Then they got up from the table, and as they were getting up from the table, Jesus said to them, all of you are going to disown me, desert me, deny me. And then Peter said, no, we won't. In fact, they all said, no, we won't. But Peter especially said, no, even if all of them disown you, I never will. Jesus, I'll die for you. And then they made their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there began the prayer meeting. And it's there we get insight into the emotional life of Christ. There we see him agonizing in prayer. And, and whilst at the same time, deeply concerned for the disciples. Stay awake, pray. And there Jesus prays three times, Lord, take this cup from me. His prayer ends with the prayer he had taught his disciples and the prayer that we prayed, prayed this morning in the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done. And then Jesus got up and said, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And that's where we pick things up in verse 43. As they get up, Jesus says, rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Now look at verse 43 and immediately... Mark's favorite phrase, while he was still speaking, Judas came. Now, we don't know whether Judas heard Jesus say the words, here comes my betrayer. But what we do know is that while Jesus and the 11 disciples were in the garden praying, Judas was scheming, leading, and guiding a menacing mob to the garden to seize Jesus. In fact, you, you can just look down at verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Verse 43, the perfect opportunity came. And humanly speaking, he could not have picked a better moment. It's probably 2 a.m. 
on Friday morning. It's now the dead of night. We're in a quiet and secluded spot. The crowds are in bed or in their tents have gathered in the city for Passover. Jesus and all of his disciples are exhausted. It's been a long day. Little did Judas know that Jesus was truly exhausted. He's been agonizing before his father in prayer. Now, here's a question for you. Do you know what makes the betrayal of Jesus so disturbing? Look at what Mark says in verse 43. Judas came, one of the twelve. Now, we know that. We don't need to be told that Judas was one of the twelve. Why does Mark bother reintroducing us to this fact that Judas was one of the twelve? Well, because he wants us to reckon with the uncomfortable fact that the one who betrayed Jesus was one of his closest friends and companions. Let me go further than that. One of the most trusted in the group of the twelve. We know that Judas had the privileged position of being in charge of the money bag. It was one of Jesus' most trusted followers who betrayed him. And Mark wants us to feel the horror of this moment, the disturbing reality of this betrayal. It should send shivers down our spine. It was one of Jesus' closest friends who betrayed him. So chilling it is that it, Judas knew where exactly Jesus would be at 2 a.m. on this Friday morning. John 18 tells us that he came to the Garden of Gethsemane because he knew it was Jesus' custom to go there. It was our favorite place to hang out. It was our favorite place to pray. Now, let's just press pause there. The fact that Jesus experienced the reality of betrayal from one of his closest friends and companions speaks to all of us in this room who have ever experienced betrayal, the, the painful reality of betrayal ourselves. I suspect in a congregation of this size, many of us know the painful reality of betrayal by a friend maybe a co-worker, maybe a co-laborer in the church, maybe a pastor, maybe a family member, maybe a spouse, a parent, a child. No matter the, the experience of betrayal you have had, you need to know this. There is one who understands what you have gone through. He experienced the most horrific betrayal of all. The Son of God who just washed Judas' feet was betrayed by his friend. And so if you have experienced betrayal, here's, here's the comfort and encouragement of this moment is that we can run to Jesus with our pain, with our heart, with our confusion, because he understands. And as we're going to see 
He's the one who can even bring good out of such evil. And don't forget this. It was through his betrayal that he accomplished our salvation. He was betrayed so that you and I would never be forsaken from the steadfast and unfailing love of God. Let's press play. So Jesus looks up. He knows who's coming. Judas is coming. He sees his betrayer. Do you know how Jesus knew his betrayer? He read it in the Psalms. Psalm 41. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Psalm 55. But it is you, a man, my equal, my my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked together in the throng. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. Jesus knew that he would be betrayed. He told his disciples on numerous occasions. But you know, his disciples never knew the identity of the betrayer. And this was the moment they discovered it. Back in lockdown, Marina and I uh, got hooked to a BBC crime drama. I'm sure some of you watched it. Line of Duty. And uh, if, you, if you've not watched it, it doesn't matter. It's just a gripping crime drama. It's one of those crime dramas that get your pulse racing. Uh, this nail-biting storyline where you were always on the edge of your seat because you didn't know who the villain was. And you're always trying to guess, is it him? Is it her? You just weren't quite sure. And it was always the, the last person that you suspected. That's a sort of moment that we have here. The disciples did not know who was going to betray Jesus. And they've just been half asleep, struggling to keep their eyes open in prayer. And now as they lift up their sleepy heads and as they rub their sleepy eyes, there in front of them is their close friend and companion, Judas. And if it hasn't sent shivers down your spine, you better believe it sent shivers down their spine. But just as the disciples are processing the fact that it was one of their best friends, they have to also come to terms with the reality that he is leading a menacing mob who are armed to the teeth. You know, um, in that moment, it's fight or flight. Their hearts must have been racing. Their adrenaline must have kicked in. Palms sweaty. What do they do? Do they run? Do they stay? Do they fight? And, and Mark, he wants us just to know the identity of this mob who come to Jesus in the darkness of night. They were from the chief priests and the religious leaders, the teachers of the law and the elders. They were a delegation of this anhedron, the Jewish ruling body. When John describes this in his account, he says, Judas was leading the way. He was guiding them to Jesus. What a moment for Jesus' disciples to see their friend aiding and abetting this mini 
mob. Verse 44 says, Now the betrayer, no longer notice called Judas, they are just a betrayer, had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Everything about this betrayal is so deeply disturbing. It is chilling and twisted. Judas planned how he would betray Jesus. He said to the mob, the one I kiss, he's the one you want. He planned to use the act of love to fulfill his mission of hate. It's so disturbing, this scene, because he betrays Jesus with a kiss. And see when it says he kissed him? It's not the idea of a peck on the cheek. It's actually the same word of the father in the prodigal son's story who lavished his son with kisses. It's it's this huge show of affection. This is the beginning of the madness of the mockery that Jesus is going to go through in his final hours before his death on the cross. And to add insult to injury, the first word of Judas's tongue is rabbi, a term of respect and honor for his teacher. And yet Judas had no such respect or honor. He actually honored the religious leaders who'd given him what he wanted, money, more than Jesus whom he'd walked with for three years. Honestly, this this is one of the most chilling events in all of the Bible. Jesus was betrayed with a kiss. Judas kissed the face of God in a vile act of betrayal. We, We know that Judas didn't really love Jesus. You know what he loved? Money. We know that from John's account, he was stealing money from the money bag. We know that he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. We know that Judas didn't really respect or honor Jesus. As I said, he respected the religious authorities more. He went to them and schemed with them of how they could capture Jesus because they gave him what he wanted. He might have kissed Jesus, but he hated Jesus and he loved himself. And so I suppose that begs the question of all of us. Who is it that you love? Who is it that I love? You know, it's, it, it is possible to come to church and with our lips sing songs to Jesus. And yet in our hearts, that not to be the, the truth and the reality of our lives. It is possible to to give the impression we respect and honor Jesus and reverence him, and yet we actually respect and honor and reverence the opinion of ourselves or others more than him. Judas kissed Jesus but loved himself. Do you love yourself more than Jesus? Now, here's the good news. Here's the good news. We sang about it in Psalm 19. There is forgiveness for anyone and everyone who will come to Jesus right now and admit that you've got disordered loves, that you sometimes succumb 
and more often than not succumb to the reality of hypocrisy. Say one thing and do another thing. He, here's the most incredible thing about Jesus, and we're going to see this in full in the next, in the next scene, but Jesus is full of mercy. Our sins might be many, but his mercy is more. And the invitation to all who come, if you realize you've got disordered loves, you fall and succumb to the sin of hypocrisy, is come to him and repent of it. He delights to forgive and to restore. Okay, so okay, so we've been disturbed by Judas's betrayal. Let's now let's now be dumbfounded at Jesus' response. Verse 46. And they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. So just at that moment, Judas has kissed Jesus. He's given them the signal. The men have come and they arrest Jesus. Verse 47, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck. Now notice what it says. The definite article, servant of the high priest. In all four gospels, he's described as this, the servant. This is the man who was in charge. This is the man who was leading the mob. He struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, it's really fascinating. The disciple who did this is unidentified. And that kind of makes me smile. Because the man who was behind the writing of Mark's gospel was Peter. And the man who struck this high servant was Peter. And it's like he said to Mark, like, I've got a lot of failures that are going to be in full display in this chapter. Why don't you just leave my name out here, Right? They'll be able to work it out. Peter being the bold, the brash, the impetuous one. Now, now, as I was thinking about it, it's interesting. It's not flight that Peter first feels, it's fight. So let's never be too hard on Peter. See, the temptation is to say that Peter failed in his words to Jesus that, you know, he would, because he denied him. But notice that in the heat of the battle, when Jesus has been seized, It's Peter who draws his sword, and it's Peter who fights. And he doesn't just strike anyone. He strikes the man in charge. This is like lighting a match in a room filled with petrol. All the mob are now going to want to go for Peter. In a sense, Peter would die for Jesus. He really would. And it's at that moment, Jesus who's cool, calm, and collected, stops it. He actually rebukes Peter. Put away your sword. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. Read that in Matthew's account. And then he goes over to the man, the servant, or the high priest. We know from John's gospel, his name is Malchus. And he touches his ear and he heals it. Now, do not miss this. If you miss this, you miss the gospel in this. This is Jesus's great enemy who wants to put him to death. And what does Jesus show him? What this man does not deserve, mercy. He heals him. He touches him. He renews his ear. If you, if you miss this, you, you miss who Jesus is and who, why Jesus came. Jesus is the Savior who came to show mercy to sinners and to his enemies. Jesus is the Savior who came in a mission of love to restore and to renew and to redeem. 
He's just prayed, your will be done. And the first action of Jesus is to heal one of his enemies who'd come to arrest him and have him put to death. I just smile again. You know, um, Peter clearly went for the head, but he had a bad aim or the high priest servant ducked and he only caught his ear. Maybe that's why Peter did not want his name mentioned. But, but there's a stunning moment. Jesus, he shows us what he's all about. And you know, as I was, as I was meditating and just reflecting on this, you know when I'm at my weakest emotionally? You know when someone wrongs me really painfully? And you know when I've got something looming over me that's overwhelming? It's not my best that comes out. It's my worst that comes out. And here's Jesus at his weakest. He's just been betrayed. He's got his death hanging over him. And what comes out? His best. His love for his enemies. What a a savior we have. You You know, when I said Jesus was so cool, calm, and collected, do you know what he said to the men? In Matthew's account we read, he said, Do you think I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Meaning I could take every single one of you guys out right now. But you know, he didn't. He didn't call upon the legion of angels. And do you know why he didn't? Because he was on a mission of love. A mission to redeem. In fact, look at the end of verse 49. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus knew that his plan and purpose from the beginning in the covenant redemption was to come and redeem and rescue sinners and enemies. Jesus knew that his will was to drink the cup. And so he chose obedience to the Father's will. Instead of his own will, he could have called down angels and put an end to it all right there and then, but he chose to go forward knowing that his mission was to redeem a people for the praise and glory of his Father and himself. Glory, glory, what a saviour. You know, someone has said Jesus was arrested because he's already arrested by a higher purpose. He was living for the glory of his Father, and he knew that that meant his arrest, suffering, and death. We must see this, that Jesus was not a passive victim in this whole scene. He was the primary mover and shaker. And he was in complete control. And what was in full display was his amazing love. It's quite a contrast. There's no love in Judas, but there's nothing but love in Jesus. Now, just so we we really are dumbfounded, Jesus makes it clear that his enemies are truly wicked and evil. He says to them in verses 48, have you come out against, as against a robber, swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. Jesus is saying like, your your whole approach to my arrest is, is, is worse than pathetic, it's wicked. You come under the cloak of darkness. You come to the secluded spot. You come as if I'm a robber. But Jesus is nothing but that. Jesus had come because he was coming to give, give people what they didn't deserve. 
The real criminals in this scene are those who came to arrest him. But Jesus had come, the innocent one, to rescue the unrighteous ones. That's the gospel. Okay, so we've, we've seen the disturbing betrayal of Judas. You can be dumbfounded at Jesus' response. Thirdly and finally, how did the disciples react to all of this? Jesus had said to them time and time again, I have to be arrested. I'm going to, I have to be betrayed. I'm going to be arrested. and I'm going to die. And he said to them very clearly, you guys are going to deny me. You guys are going to disown me. So if you look down at verse 50, and they all left him and fled. And again, it's really important to notice that this isn't fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus had said to them, the reason they were going to disown him and flee was because it was written in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now just remember Peter's words. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. And so in many ways, we see just how disappointing their desertion was. They'd said to Jesus, we'll never disown you. We'll die with you. This mob come into the garden. Peter initially fights. Jesus rebukes him. And then he flees as do the others. Now, I think there's a reason we need to see everyone fleeing from Jesus in this moment, and it's this. Jesus had to go through the work of salvation on his own. All we ever contribute is the sin and rebellion. He contributes everything to salvation. From first to last, salvation belongs to him. But as we look on at this plan, everything that is planned by God, written in the word, hundreds and thousands of years before, we must see in the disciples, even though they're fulfilling scripture, they're just a picture of you and I. It's easy for us as Christians, honestly, it's easy for me to overestimate how strong I am. And then the day of trial comes, how quick I am to fail. It's easy to overestimate your own faithfulness and strength, to talk, you know, I'll stand for Christ. Ironically, it's those who have such confidence who probably will be among the first to deny Jesus. You know, one of the liberating things about being a Christian is you get to admit the truth about yourself. And the truth about yourself as a Christian is that we are weak. We're, we're a bag of contradictions. And in fact, to be a Christian, you need to admit that you're a sinner and that you need a savior. And so it's not ever about us confessing, God, God, I'm going to be strong for you. No, no, no. It's we need him and we need his spirit to sustain us, to keep us as followers of him. Hence the reason we must be those given to prayer. It's just a little interesting footnote. The disciples fell asleep when they should have been praying. And Jesus had said, pray not for me, watch and pray for yourselves. A prayerless Christian life will lead to easy failure and falling. Now, I want to say something that's really important. I think there's a temptation among Christians is that when we see a brother or sister fail or fall, we can quickly be filled with judgment. 
Oh, look at, look at your mistake. Look at how badly and spectacularly you've failed the Lord. You might not verbalize it, but you might think it in, inside when you hear about a major failing of a, of a Christian. Don't ever look down or judge other Christians. These disciples who failed Jesus spectacularly were the same disciples who repented and were restored to be the leaders of the early church. The failures became instruments in the hand of the Savior to accomplish the Savior's purposes. You might see a failing Christian right now who you think they're living far off and they're, they're not living the way they should be and they just might be the person that will be ministering to you in the days to come. Now, as this scene closes, there's this strange happening. We, get, we read about the first streaker in the Bible. There's this young man who followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away. It's actually the only record in the Bible we have of a disciple being seized. And one of the functions of this scene is to tell us just how terrifying this moment was. This is a flesh and blood illustration that as the disciples experienced the terror that night of this menacing mob coming into the garden, they were so terrified. This disciple would rather lose his reputation than be dead with Jesus. Now, many guys speculate, who was this young man? I don't think it's relevant, but if you want to know who people think it was, they think it was Mark, the author of this gospel. So Peter says, don't identify me. Mark says, I'll not, I'll not mention that I'm this young man. But you know, this was in complete fulfillment of scripture. Amos chapter 2, verse 16, in on that day, the bravest of men will flee naked. It's incredible that salvation's story, the final hours of Jesus, it was all according to plan. And this is the comfort and encouragement for us. Here's the plan of salvation. In light of what Jesus does for us, you and I, our response shouldn't be to flee from Jesus, but to run to Jesus for salvation. Yes, we see the disciples desert Jesus. But these are the same disciples who will turn to Jesus. And do you know the most amazing thing in this as we end in this? Jesus didn't flee. Jesus didn't fight. Jesus didn't summon the angels. Jesus entrusted himself to these men because he'd entrusted himself to his father's plan. His was a mission of love. His was the fulfillment of the covenant of redemption. And so, brothers and sisters, how are you going to respond? Flee from him or flee to him? That's the question. Let's pray. Our glorious Father, what we've beheld of your Son is 
truly astonishing. How he surrendered himself to accomplish your will, his will, to save the lost, to rescue and redeem sinners, enemies, rebels. We are dumbfounded at Jesus, awestruck, astounded, astonished, speechless. We have to admit we're also speechless because we look at ourselves and we see our sin and we see that we are so, so much like the disciples and perhaps even some of us, we can see ourselves in Judas. And so we come and we, we run to you. We confess and we admit who we are. We are those with disordered loves. We are those who sin and we are those who desire and we are those who are weak. And we are those in desperate need of a saviour. And those of us who are saved and who know our saviour, we're in desperate need of being reminded of how glorious our saviour is. And so God, we pray that even as we respond to this passage, it would be responding in faith and trust and complete and utter dependence upon him who lived for us, died for us, was raised and has now ascended for us and ever lives to pray for us. We pray, O oh God, that we would respond appropriately to all that he's done for us. It's in his precious and powerful name we ask this. Amen.